you learn a lot in the sales process. And it impacts the product as you kind of hear things in the sales process. If we had focused on that earlier, our product would have, I think, improved faster. And we would have gotten a lot better at how we kind of tell our story and how we market it. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. With me today is Trevor Dreyer, co-founder and CEO of Carbon Title, which helps the real estate industry understand, manage, and share the ongoing carbon impact of their buildings and portfolios. Trevor is a repeat startup founder tackling a problem that he is very passionate about, climate change. With experience that spans ESG and fintech startups, as well as a global technology leader, he turns complex business challenges into profitable and scalable growth solutions and brand-distinguishing software products. Trevor has experience with high-growth companies, both as an operator and an investor. Trevor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really glad to have you. You are my first founder that is doing anything like you're doing. So <laughs> I understand that what you're doing is, is really enabling property owners and developers to, to plan and reach their net zero goals through making greener building choices and purchasing high quality carbon removals. What's the actual problem that you're solving? Or is that, would you say that's it or part of it? Yeah. Um, well, I guess at the the macro level, the problem we're solving is that 38% of greenhouse gas emissions globally come from our buildings. And a big chunk of that comes from the electricity, natural gas to you know operate them, light, heat, cool. Um, and then a big chunk comes from the actual materials that are used in building a building or when you renovate it. So at the highest level, that's what we're trying to do is makes a significant dent in reducing those greenhouse gas emissions. But for the specific building owners, what we had heard is there are kind of two problems that they're facing. The first is nobody knows what the carbon intensity is of a building. You know, if you're a, a big Fortune 500 company that's made a climate pledge and you're looking at leasing office space, you have no idea in the 10 properties you're looking at, what's their carbon balance, which one are greener than the other. Or if you're a renter and thinking, you know, you care about climate change and I'm looking at renting a, you know, an apartment, I have no idea whether building A or building B is better. And so that's the first problem that we're, we're working to solve is making all this transparent and have, uh, you know, climate be part of the conversation when people are making decisions about where to, to live and work. Um, and the second problem we have is the availability of low carbon building materials. The, the big, big offenders when it comes to climate change and, and construction are concrete, steel, insulation, and glazing. And those by far emit the most greenhouse gases, um, with concrete being the winner all of, of all of them. Um, and there are a lot of really great promising technologies that can produce low or maybe even some zero carbon concrete, for example, green steel, 
but the availability um, is not in sufficient quantities to give a lot of these big projects the the comfort to contract with them. What makes concrete the big offender? Yeah, it's uh, the production of the concrete. So concrete has, and I'm not an expert on concrete, but a few different components. And the cement Mm -hmm. component is Mm -hmm. just takes a lot of energy and Mm. emits a lot of CO2 when you're making it. And so there are some interesting technologies out there now that... um, by the way that they cure the cement, the way that they produce the cement, mix mm. the concrete, they're able to not only dramatically reduce the, the CO2 emissions, but some are even actually able to create a product that sucks CO2 out of the air. And so your wow. concrete is actually sequestering carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, but amazing. they need to get to scale. They're all at kind mm-hmm. of early proof of concept, one plant mm-hmm. running, and to make a dent, they've got to really scale well, it up. I mean, it's got to be mammoth. Uh-uh, it you does. Know, if you it think really of it globally, does. right? Absolutely. So is, is so there's really nothing that, you know, the sort of general population homeowner can do about that at this point. When, you know, if somebody's building a home or replacing a driveway or something like that, is there? Um, well, just out of curiosity, de- depending <laughs> where you're at, you could ask your contractor, um, mm-hmm. hey, I'm interested in low carbon concrete, for example, replacing a driveway. And they could look and see because it's certainly available in quantities for an individual homeowner. Mm-hmm. When you get Got to it. building, you know, a big industrial project or a big office tower, that's where we don't quite have the supply yet. Yeah. So they could yeah. do that. Um, the other thing homeowners can do is uh, really focus on the energy efficiency of, of their house. So there's some simple mm-hmm. things like LED lighting and stuff, which will also help you save money on, on electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, also a big thing to think about is if you're replacing your kitchen, think about maybe electrifying your appliances, get rid of the gas stove. Um, that's a big one as well. And a lot of the new induction stoves I've Mm -hmm. I've heard are really great. I have heard the same thing. I've got gas. I've had gas for many, many years. If I were going to replace it, I would actually consider induction, but never electricity. Yes. Yes. Electricity is the most, the worst way to cook. And that's a, that's for a whole separate show, I I think (laughs) (laughs) on cooking instead of this. (laughs) So let me ask you this. Um, you, you, and we'll get into your background, but a little bit later, but you, you know, the company's only a year and a half old. You just founded it in November of 2021. And I know when we had, uh, when we have spoken prior to this, you mentioned that you did take a small seed investment from a couple of couple of venture capitalists. Tell me a little bit more about why you chose to do that. Um, if if you are, you know, if there are any plans in the future to take more investment, why why not? Yeah, great question. So, um, the way I've always kind of approached thinking about capital and business and things I tell friends who are starting companies is you really need to kind of think first, in my opinion, about what type of business are you building. And what does it need? Um, so is this the kind of business that needs to scale quickly and get to critical mass in order to start generating significant right. revenue? Then, yeah, you might need some outside capital. Mm-hmm. Or is this the kind of business that there are going to be lots of winners and, you know, take your time, bootstrap it if you can, or maybe some, you know, small investments from friends and family, keep that ownership and um, kind of build over time. I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. I agree. Um, you know, for it's our a, business, it's a depends. <laughs> it's a depends. It totally is a depends, and I think that's where yeah. some entrepreneurs go yeah. wrong. Is I agree. They just read, you know, TechCrunch or whatever, and they think, oh, step one is go get a bunch of VCs to dump a lot of money into my business, yeah. and it might not be the right fit. Um, that's right. For Carbon Title, 
we're trying to tackle a really large thorny problem. And so what we thought is let's take on some capital from some VCs if it's going to be something that helps move the business forward faster. And so that's allowed us to scale a little bit faster, get the product to market a little bit faster, but more importantly, it's given us access to, with the VCs we pick that have incredible LP bases that own lots of real estate. So we kind of thought these are built-in initial customers for us to kind of you know, eat the dog food with us and work out all the kinks and um, you know, in a friendly kind of way before we're ready to go really broad to the general public. And so that's worked out great for us. And um, that's the and reason- And them, because they're not paying work. you at this point, I imagine, correct? Or right, are they? Right. Yeah. Uh, those customers- They're doing you, they're doing the beta, you a favor. They're, they're doing us a yeah. favor. They're, they're, they're mm-hmm. paying us in lots of feedback on the product. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do a yeah, lot of smart. design research sessions where we talk to them about their needs, the problems, and then we come back with concepts and test those. And so um, they've, yeah. been, they've been great. I think a lot of people don't realize that that's an avenue. Uh, and it I know is. other, other founders yeah. who've, who've gone that avenue and, you know, they, 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 you know, grab up these people and, and that's how you get the data is by them giving it to you. And, you know, that helps you. So, so, so tell me about what it is. I mean, are you now, are you now actually selling to people? Have these early, early people started paying you yet? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we're, we're, we're starting to sell now. Um, okay. and we're putting together. So, uh, let me take a step back. Our next big product launch is going to be in, in May in early May mm-hmm. when we're going to be going public with a, um, a public map that shows basically the carbon intensity on an <sighs> ongoing basis of pretty much every building in the U S Wow. Um, major markets awesome. are going to be close to hundred percent, some smaller towns. We don't quite have the data. It'll be lower, mm-hmm. but, um, it's all based off of the models we've built and all the kind of software that are these beta customers have been testing. And so we are starting to now kind of pre-sell and put together what we're calling kind of our, our founding circle of, you know, kind of large players in the industry to kind of get on board and then help hopefully start moving the conversation towards, right. we need to think about sustainability when we build things. So is, is the sort of feature benefit here, those who might be looking for office space or an apartment or whatever that really wants to be in a more eco-conscious building? Yes. Yeah. So our, our idea is, so if, you know, a lot of people are familiar with, you know, Zillow and the Z estimate, kind of what yeah. your home value might be worth, or some people on the commercial side use walk score, which kind of gives mm-hmm. how walkable is a neighborhood and, access transportation, stuff like that. We're trying to kind of do the same thing for carbon. So Mm -hmm. absolutely you can, you're looking at two or three properties. You can see not only here's the carbon balance, but is the owner doing anything to kind of reduce the emissions? It'll allow the owners to say, Hey, we've put in led lighting. We're putting in heat pumps. We're buying carbon credits. Our carbon building is carbon neutral, whatever that story is Mm -hmm. that the owner is trying to do around sustainability. You can easily access it and see it whether that's a single family home or an apartment building or an office mm-hmm. building. Mm-hmm. Um, the other real big benefit that we're seeing are for um, investors. So there are a lot of investors in addition to companies that have made climate neutral pledges and they don't really have a good, reliable and easy way to understand their right. real estate portfolio. So this allows, you know, if you're a big pension fund and you own a lot of real estate to be able to say, okay, I can see quickly now, here's my portfolio. Here are the carbon emissions. Here's mm-hmm. the buildings that are doing something. Here are the ones that aren't. I know where I can, which managers I need to maybe prod a little bit to do something. Um, 
and they can start seeing and tracking over time, are the greener buildings performing better? Um, mm. There are several studies that we've seen from some big brokerages like JLL that show that you get a rent premium if you have a green building. But um, those are kind of early green shoots and we need that to now mm -hmm. become kind of conventional wisdom in the marketplace. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, tell me how you came up with this idea. Yeah, it's so my background's in, in, in fintech. And prior to this, my previous company was a small business lending platform um, mm -hmm. that we sold to banks and credit unions to help them better manage risk and, and ultimately mm -hmm. get more capital out to, to small businesses. And so completely different. And after I sold that and did my, my time at the acquirer, um, took some time off and you know, initially thought, oh, I, I don't know if I'm going to do another company. It's, it's a lot of work getting it from kind of zero to one. And mm -hmm. as I kind of recharged, I kept getting the itch and realized, I don't know, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but I really <laughs> like that early stage, figuring out the product. Yeah. And I don't know, is, is it going to work? Is it not? Are we going to make it? Or are we going to wind down? I don't mm -hmm. know. And that's kind of fun. And I started thinking, you know, okay, so maybe another company, I really want to do something that I also am really passionate about, um, in addition to building companies, which I love. And climate change just kept coming up for me, you know, thinking mm -hmm. about, I've got uh, two small kids and thinking about, well, wow, seeing yeah, some of the, gonna be what's it going to be like? And seeing some of these things that have been coming out of the UN, if we're not able to kind of get this under control, it's going to be just a wild yeah. world and really tough. And so mm -hmm. that's where um, I thought, let's do something in climate change and let me try to find an area that's maybe not getting as much attention right now and where I maybe have a skill set that I can bring to bear. Mm -hmm. Like, I I'm not going to invent a new low carbon concrete material. I'm not <laughs> a material scientist, but. With a software background, I figure this is an area where I could maybe help make yeah. a difference. Do you feel that, that at least from the feedback you've gotten from these, you know, the early companies that have been giving you the data, that these companies not just want, but that they need this? Yes. Um, and so, it, and I'd say it, it's a different reaction depending on who we're talking to. Yeah. So what we're hearing from the building owners to me, which is really encouraging, even those that are just purely financially motivated, which mm -hmm. I think is fine by me, mm -hmm. they're saying, well, I am worried about my anchor tenants that are big corporations that have made these pledges and care about it. That's I'm right. worried about them renewing the lease if I don't do mm -hmm. something. And oh, by the way, um, for these bigger scale developers, I go to fill in pension fund, university endowment, big money manager, whatever mm -hmm. it is. They're all asking me about what my carbon footprint is because they've made That's pledges right. to get yeah, to carbon neutral by 2050. Mm -hmm. And so they really need a solution. Um, if you talk to the <laughs> Not contract, because they want yeah. it, but because they're being pressured into it. <laughs> yes. I'd say building owners, yeah. there's some that are doing it because they think it's the right thing and they want to be okay. green. But most of them, I feel like, are getting pressured into it by their stakeholders. Yeah. That's okay. Um, that's what it takes, I guess. That's, that's what it takes, you know. And it's interesting. Contractors, um, they this is something that they really see as a competitive advantage mm -hmm. of saying, hey, can I work with somebody like Carbon Title uh, to help get those low-carbon building materials and to almost be able to deliver this as a service to my clients, that if I'm mm -hmm. you know, building an office park for a, a big tech company, I can not only deliver them the buildings, but deliver them a carbon neutral building. Mm -hmm. um, so they see it as a real competitive advantage. 
Yeah. And then, um, you know, the long-term building owners, the kind of universities, cities, things like that, mm-hmm. they are really excited about having the tools to understand what the carbon impact is without having to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on consultants and, you know, months and months and months putting this together. Trevor, would you consider carbon title a prop tech? I'd really consider it climate tech, probably okay. more than prop tech. Um, okay. That's the space that we really try to play in and we're focused on. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. So, you know, we, we, you, you talked a little bit about some of the things you've done in your background, but I, I want to I talk a little bit more about, about that, go maybe a little bit deeper as to, you know, kind of where you started, which was, you know, getting out of... Um, graduate school, um, with a law degree <laughs> and, and not spending very much time as an attorney <laughs> after that, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> before, you know, before you made the move to, you know, into it and then subsequently, you know, were left there and became an entrepreneur, entrepreneur in residence, which I find interesting because I sometimes see so many entrepreneurs in residence, um, you know, it happens after they've held, you know, a really high level executive role, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm curious to hear kind of how that happened for you. And then your, your journey on up to, uh, you know, your own firm, which mm-hmm. I, which I believe was Mirador. Yep. That you were talking about. And, um, and on into you said, you know, when you said, well, I was thinking about what do I want to do? And, and we kind of know that part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and jump in if I'm not not answering your question here, but yeah. you know it's kind of one of those funny things, like the law school piece of mm-hmm. the twists and turns of life, and you just don't quite ever know what's ahead. So I went to law school thinking I think I really want to be a law professor. I really want to teach. <laughs> oh. I really find the law interesting. Yeah. I've always been kind of I've never really been super involved in politics, but always been kind of interested mm-hmm. in public policy, mm-hmm. and thought yeah, this is something I think I want to do. So. I had a really smart law professor who's kind of my mentor in law school said, well, you should really, before you kind of fully commit to this, try to test it out. So why don't you mm-hmm. try to get a couple, you know, articles published in journals, that's the research portion. And why don't you be like the TA for, you know, a couple classes, undergrad classes, see if you really like that. And I love the teaching part. The research part I've said didn't really love. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the way I, I put it. it also is like, it's writing these long research papers that in the law, you get so subspecialized that maybe mm-hmm. six people in the entire country will ever read or care about. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it just wasn't, and that's really what law schools value in terms of tenure and promotion and stuff more than, than the teaching. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of realized that wasn't really for me. Um, but, you know, it's interesting how those things kind of fit together is I think having a legal background has made me much more comfortable in fintech. Um, mm-hmm. And now in kind of dealing with some of the climate tech stuff where it's fintech in particular, it's heavily regulated. And I think there are yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs that jump in that, you know, ha- fall into some traps because they're not, you know, thinking through some of the compliance stuff mm-hmm. around fintech. Mm-hmm. Or they're maybe scared off because they think, oh, gosh, this is regulated. I- I'm not going to try because it's it's too much of a barrier. So you know, would I have been better off probably just jumping right back into tech probably, but at the same time, you know, it it was, I think a a decent background. Um, Mm -hmm. but I realized I didn't really want to be a lawyer when that kind of happened. It's, you know, a lot of just luck and I'm really grateful for the, Mm -hmm. uh, the guy Alco, who was my boss at Intuit, he had a similar Mm -hmm. background and said, you know, 
I'm going to take a risk on you. I think you're, I think you're smart. I think you're, you're motivated and um, I'll help you figure out the pieces that you haven't learned yet. And that kind of fortuitously took me on this fintech path, which has been Mm -hmm. really great. And even with my current business, there's some things we're looking at in the future around some financial arrangements to help increase the availability of these low carbon building materials where that fintech backgrounds Mm -hmm. come in useful. That's great. Uh, Tell me about how Mirador came to you and to your co-founders. Yeah. Yeah. Mirador came out of my time at Intuit. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think I picked up in a big way at Intuit, I think they do really well is um, design research. So we would spend a lot of time in the whole company from, you know, the CEO down to like, you know, the brand new hire right out of college is expected to spend time with customers. Mm -hmm. And it's not just kind of sales conversations, but like we'd even go to their place of business, like with, you know, small businesses that are using QuickBooks, for example, and seeing what their problems are and kind of hearing what are their biggest challenges? How are they using the software? And it's not just, is this software easy to use? Should I move the button from here to over here? But really, what are their business problems? And are there some things that we can do to help solve business problems? Mm -hmm. So in these discussions, when um, I've, you know, and my team were kind of interacting with a whole bunch of uh, small businesses and we were focused on payments, but we kept hearing about access to credit. And these, you know, these are, it was typically a story like, oh, I own a restaurant location and this new location just came up for lease and it's the perfect spot and I want to do it, but I need 200,000. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I got to renovate it or (laughs) I've got a plumbing business and I've Mm -hmm. got more customers than I can handle. I want to hire somebody, but I need a a van and tools and that's 50 K not large amounts of money, but didn't have the money immediately available. Mm -hmm. And at the time into it wasn't really doing anything or interested in focusing on credit. And so that's where mm-hmm. it kind of, the idea came from. And I started thinking, Good. well, these small businesses, they're going to their banks. They're often getting turned down because the business hasn't been around long enough yeah. or for all these reasons. And banks have a very mm-hmm. tight credit box mm-hmm. or they're going to these online lenders. And some of them were paying, you know, 50, 60% APR. <laughs> Might as well loans. be loan sharks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. I think they were absolutely loan sharks, like yeah. hiding out as these kind of, you know, respectable Horrible. lenders. But yeah. And the businesses that were saying, well, you know, it's going to generate more business. It's going to be painful, but I can pay it off. And I thought there's got to be a better way. Yeah. And so, you know, how can we help the banks um, reduce the cost and the time it takes them to underwrite mm-hmm. these small loans and mm-hmm. understand their risk better so more people can get, you know, a bank loan at 5% than having to go to, you know, kind of a loan shark at 50%. That's just horrifying. It's Um, horrifying. Who did you exit your company to? We exit to uh, CUNA Mutual. They're a big insurance company out Mm -hmm. of uh, Wisconsin. And they have, um, I'd say, virtually every credit union as a customer um, on their insurance side. Oh, interesting. And their kind of thesis for buying uh, Mirador was two things. One is a lot of their insurance products are attached to lending. So you get a car loan and they want to sell you the auto insurance with it. Right, you know, of course. Things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And as more and more of these loan originations were moving online, they were worried that they were not going to be as into the flow as they wanted to be. And so right. buying us and then expanding out of small business to auto and mortgage mm-hmm. and all these other loan categories kind of gave them a platform to really kind of keep marketing in the digital world, their, their mm-hmm. loan products. 
And it also gave them another revenue stream of something else they could sell software to their credit union customers in addition to just the insurance. Mm-hmm. Is CUNA Mutual um, a national or a regional carrier? Uh, they're national. So they they've are. got credit unions, kind of, I'd say virtually every credit union, I, I would be surprised if, is not a customer of theirs in some way. So, okay. you know, there are about 5,000 credit unions around the country, roughly, right. and I'd say 90% are their customers. Wow, that's really interesting. And you stayed with them for about a year and a half, which is not atypical. Yeah. Um, so did Mirador ultimately get just sucked into CUNY Mutual or is there still, you know, is it still, a, is it a wholly owned subsidiary? How are they operating it? It got, um, so it started off as kind of being its own own thing. And we had, mm-hmm. you know, um, at, at the time, most of our team was in Portland, Oregon. And so, and then over time, the plan was always to kind of retire mm-hmm. the Mirador brand, mm-hmm. rebrand it with CUNY Mutual and kind of mm-hmm. suck it into the larger organization, which yeah. in talking with some of the folks who are still there, that, that's now kind of happened, um, yeah. which I think is a good thing at, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, as a founder, always a little sad to see the brand go away, but I think it's much more powerful um, with their brand. It's a bigger brand. It's well-known. It has a lot of currency in the mm-hmm. credit union space. Fantastic. So... Looking back at your, you know, your co-founding of Mirador and you were the CEO of that as well. Um, what are the, some of the mistakes that you made in that, you know, as a first time founder Yeah, that you, um, that you made that you realize, okay, I'm not going to make those mistakes in my next startup, <laughs> which hopefully you oh, haven't. Gosh, there's, there's so many, which ones? Yeah. Well, I know that so I know which there's, it's always so many. Pick, pick the top um, two or three <laughs> the highlights. All right. Well, I'd say maybe my top one was not focusing on the commercial side of it soon enough. I think when I started Mirador, I kind of was very focused on the product and thought, okay, I need to build out this product. I need to get this really great product that people are going to love. Yeah. And then I'll figure out how to kind of sell it. And I think that was a mistake for two reasons. One is it just delayed revenue, which just makes mm-hmm. it, you know, you, harder. harder to go faster when you don't have the That's revenue right. coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, but more importantly is you learn a lot in the sales process. Yeah, of course and, you do. Um, and it impacts the product as you kind of hear things in the sales process because design research is great and you learn different things when you're in a sales conversation and people are having to write a check. And so I think if we had focused on that earlier, our product would have, I think, um, improved faster mm-hmm. and we would have gotten a lot better at how we kind of tell our story and how we market it. And um, so that's something I really wished we had done, done, done differently. And so... Okay. With Carbon Title, we started off from the get-go, like, let's get into these beta conversations and let's get people to commit, even Mm -hmm. if it's at a highly discounted rate (laughs) or some of them getting it, you know, for free. So Mm -hmm. um, that that was a big one. I think the second one was really focusing on culture in hires and particularly the leadership team that... You know, I had a couple early hires where I thought these folks have had great track records particularly a couple of mishires I, I had early on, you know, mm-hmm. were fantastic at what they did, great track records, but didn't quite fit culturally with what we were True. doing. Mm-hmm. And it just caused so much friction. And I think that's the other thing as well, too, when there's not a cultural fit, you got to just have that open and honest conversation and not yeah. delay it. And yep. my first time around, I kind of hung on thinking like, oh gosh, what are we <laughs> going to do if this key person leaves? And then 
you finally gets to a point you have a conversation. They're like, yeah, I'm not happy here either because of the cultural mm-hmm. fit. So it was like a very amicable parting of ways. And that should have happened, you know, six months earlier at, at Miriam. Well, but, you know, to your point, I mean, this is the reason I ask, you know, first time founder, these are the, these are the mistakes that people make, right? Totally. Um, <laughs> for many reasons. And I, you know, I, I say this as often as it comes up and is as appropriate, something in the neighborhood of like 56, north of 50%, let's say, let me just say that, north of 50% of people leave a job in the first 18 months for reasons having nothing to do with their skills and abilities. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That That is higher than I would have expected. But when you say it now, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not just necessarily leadership. It's all roles, Everybody. right? Everybody. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. So that, that, I, that, you know, number really shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, because so many companies do this really poorly, (laughs) you know, or they, they, you know, they, or somebody said, you know, you, you paste your vision up on the wall and then think that everybody's just going to like, you know, spontaneously, you know, through osmosis, they're going to get it. (laughs) Right. Yes, 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 totally. (laughs) And doesn't really happen. A hundred percent. Right. And, and that's the other, I guess that related to that, that was the other thing I think is a carbon title. We've done a better job. Mm-hmm. We have, our mission is very clear. Get every building to carbon neutral. Yes. People can rally behind that. We spent less time, like I think sometimes companies can probably over-engineer kind of the corporate values and, mm-hmm. you know, they get, like spend almost a little bit too much time and they get too many of them. And it's hard to optimize. And like you said, they just end up being a poster on the wall. And so mm-hmm. we, we did that at Mirador. And it was really hard for people to absorb it. And a carbon title instead, what we said are, what are the kind of key pillars of our culture? Mm-hmm. And let's pick three or four of them and turn those into kind of our values. And mm-hmm. so, you know, one of them is just, you know, respectful openness. And that like, we don't want, if something's not going well, please don't hide it. <laughs> We're always mm-hmm. going to be transparent with everybody at the company of how we're doing, how we're doing on revenue, how we're mm-hmm. doing on you know funding, whatever it might be. We're going to be open and honest, and please be open and honest with everybody else in, in return. If an idea you think is not the right one, got to be respectful, but say it, you know. And then that, and then kind of collaboration and some of these other things that we thought of. Let's turn those into values as opposed to kind of getting starting from the other way around, and let's not have too many at least initially make sure that we can drive it into our operating mechanisms. Yeah, and I think that's really smart. My, my question is in, um, you know, as you're talking about this, I would, the terminology I would give it that I use is culture of feedback. Yes, and I love that term. That's a great <laughs> you're term, You're welcome Carol. to reuse it. Um, <laughs> the reason I ask that is because people think, sometimes they think they have a culture of feedback and they really don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so my question about that is, you can say this is one of our values and that is having culture feedback, but the question is, how do you actually exhibit it? Yes. And, and are you exhibiting it from you personally? Yes. I think that, I think that's where it has to start. You I know, one of the, right. one of the tricks that I've kind of done is sometimes people I think are um, more, feel more comfortable sometimes giving feedback one-on-one than in necessarily mm-hmm. a group. And depending on the feedback, mm-hmm. sometimes it shouldn't be in a group. It should be one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes if it's like, hey, I've got a real question about the strategy we're going down or something mm-hmm. like that. A trick that a mentor of mine told me is like, you know, great. If you're having a one-on-one with them, that's great. Talk through it. But then at the end say, hey, this needs to be something that is said with the leadership team. 
and needs to be right. driven through our meeting. So can you please at our next team meeting, bring this up? I think it's a very important point and, you know, yeah. get them to bring it up and then start seeing people start seeing, oh yeah, there's feedback happening and let's have a conversation and let's discuss mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. So that, and then the other piece I heard too, is if you get in a situation where somebody's having friction with another employee, you say, Hey, I need you to go talk to them and give them that feedback. And if you don't feel comfortable, I'm happy to be there as part of the conversation or we can figure out a way to have it be comfortable, but mm-hmm. you need to be able to get to you, get you to a spot where you're able mm-hmm. to have a conversation in a way that's respectful and, and, you know, builds the relationship mm-hmm. and it's easier right. said than done, but those are a couple things that <laughs> I've tried, I kind of learned in Mirador, um, yeah. you know, that I, I, a mentor of mine kind of said, Hey, maybe you had to try these and that we're trying to do from the get go here at Carbon mm-hmm. Title. Yeah, no, I listen, I completely agree. That's, I mean, that's certainly part of the work that I do. And I tell, I'm in fact in a project like this right now. And, you know, I make it clear to people just, just because the CEO says we're going to build a culture of feedback and this is what that means. Doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there, there are, there are steps that you have to put in place to actually bring that through to fruition because a culture of feedback is, you know, is, is not just you exhibiting it yourself. It is people, peers have to be able to do it with each other and subordinates have, have to be able to go to their managers and be able to have that without fear of negative repercussions. And that kind of thing doesn't. And if you've got anybody on your team, that's like, F you, I'm not getting involved in that. Well, you know, you either, you either, if they're open to coaching, you coach them through it. And if they're not, you probably need to replace them. Agree. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is if you're a manager or CEO is admitting you're wrong when you're wrong and doing that kind of publicly. And I think that's a big one. And especially Mm -hmm. if it's come from, you know, somebody else with an idea and saying, you know what, this is a great idea. I didn't see that. I think that this is the way we should go and admitting when you're wrong, I think is a big piece Mm -hmm. of it. The other thing we've tried to do is when we have kind of, we're still small, if we can have kind of all hands where it could be more of a conversation. Yes. Um, And what we've, we try to say, asking questions, if there aren't any questions, you kind of say like, look, I don't buy that. None of you have questions. Right. Can some people, (laughs) can, can, can people raise your hand and say, what are something that you're nervous about with the company or that you think we maybe don't have right? And, yeah. you know, Hey, we're, we're going to give, you know, gift cards to the first three people that raise their hands on this, you know, <sighs> things just to kind of try to break the ice, especially right, new hires right. and like, and you'll get these really interesting comments and things and yeah. that, you know, Hey, we haven't, we haven't thought through that. Yeah. Let, let's go and talk about it and then we'll report back what we're doing. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, Trevor, do you have, is there any competition in your business thus far? There are other companies doing what you're, what you're up to? You know, knock on wood, we haven't seen anybody doing exactly what we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. There are a bunch of companies out there that are doing kind of ESG measurement and like tracking yes. energy usage and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't seen anybody that is working on the whole building, which is your mm-hmm. energy usage and the carbon that's emitted from the construction and building the structure. Right. And we haven't seen anybody who is going out and doing this, making it all public. Everybody is mm-hmm. kind of hoarding their data and trying to monetize it and sell it. And our view is Mm -hmm. this is going to be public. And we're, in fact, we're even putting it out on a blockchain, which anybody can go and read and see the carbon balance. So if if we go away or we end up selling to somebody that has a different strategy, the data is all out there. It's a public good. Yeah. You can't let that horse back in the barn. Exactly. Um, (laughs) What would you say are the biggest challenges, you know, a year and a half in that you're facing 
I would say the biggest challenges are um, one is just moving the conversation forward. That when we talk about you know um, CO two emissions in buildings, everybody thinks about the energy usage, and it's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's a lot of education Clearly. I think that needs yeah. to happen in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is the, the biggest challenge. Um, the other thing as well is when we're building, you know, we're setting out to kind of be the repository for all this information. So to do that, mm-hmm. we have to have lots of people using it. I think that's the challenge, that cold start problem, <laughs> you know, that we're, we're working through right now. And I think we're going to get through it successfully because we've got some very big players that have signed on or are signing on, but we need to keep focused on Mm-hmm. We keep talking about that with our team. How do we become kind of the trusted source for this? Mm-hmm. And we need to have not a constellation of nonprofits and you know big corporations that are using us around us. Mm-hmm. And so that I think is the biggest business challenge we have right now. Yeah. Um, and on the people side, honestly, like we we're a distributed team. Mm-hmm. We didn't set out to be a distributed team. Mm-hmm. Um, my co-founder and I are, are, are in the same office all day, every day. But you know, our leadership team, we've got our CTO in Florida. We've got our head of product designs in New York. Our CMOs in San Francisco. We've got mm-hmm. folks spread all over the country. And mm-hmm. I think our, our biggest challenge has been how do we stay connected and build mm-hmm. bridges in mm-hmm. kind of a distributed world? And you know, I think mm-hmm. we're doing pretty well in some ways. We do a lot of things, you know, on Slack and kind of ad hoc video mm-hmm. conference calls. But, we, you know, we're going to start getting people together, you know, a couple mm-hmm. times a year. Good. But I think there's a lot we still have to learn from other companies that have done it well. Um, yeah. Yeah, because it's new for me. Yeah. You mentioned um, one of the one of the things being a challenge is you know getting the word out about what you're up to. Well, what are you yeah. doing about that? I mean, are you are you writing? Are you you know getting articles placed in you know the appropriate places so people start to read about you and what you're up to? Yes, <laughs> all of that. <laughs> we're working okay, all that. Good. We're we're generating content that we put out on our mm-hmm. our blog and kind of a newsletter so folks can kind of come and and sign up on our website. Um, we are doing a PR push with, you know, contributed articles and they'll hopefully be fingers Mm -hmm. crossed around this, um, the release of this public map in May. And we're hoping Mm -hmm. we can get some press coverage and then, Mm -hmm. you know, talking to folks, uh, like yourself, Carol, that have got a great group of of followers who are really engaged Mm -hmm. in trying to just get the word out about, um, climate change here. Cause it's, it's something I think people don't really think about especially the individuals. You don't think about your house <laughs> being probably right. one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gases you have. It's bigger than your car. It's bigger than the airplane travel you do. It's mm. probably bigger than the food you eat. Um, well, if, if my solar ever gets turned on. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, solar, there's a lot of things, some easier, then some I'm hoping harder. that'll help my house if I can ever get my, I, I, I won't mention who it is, but the company that's, that installed it it's been installed for quite some time now, um, is now on their third revision to the utility company who they said oh, is the geez. absolute worst in the United States that they work oh, with geez. my utility company. It's a, it's a rural electric association. Um, uh, and you know, there's now a third one because they're demanding that the disconnect be moved from the back of the house to the front of the house or somewhere else. And I'm like, oh, why? And, you know, and my installer called me and said, well, do you want, you know, we can put, we can put, um, 
uh, a conduit across your patio. I'm like, no, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And you're no, trying that's to not do something happen. good here. Like, you know, uh, so, so, so I, I, my point in telling you this is not to, you know, talk about me here necessarily, but is that I think that I'm not the only one with this challenge. You're not. <laughs> who, you're definitely who not. Who wants to do better, <laughs> but, you know, they're working with a utility company who is just, I hate to say it, run by a bunch of old white guys who are just refusing <laughs> yeah, yeah. to change the way they do business, right? They yeah. just want to keep using coal. Yes. And yes. and they're being pressured, of course, to do this kind of work. You know, but but they sure aren't making it any easier. And I'm gonna and I'm going to write the a letter as soon as I have a time. I send an email to the CEO of the of the, my electric um, association because I'm just it's just like, really, why, why does it, why do you have to have it somewhere else other than where they put it? And why is this coming up now over a month later after the installation after the was install. complete? Yes. Yes. Or two You're months later or whatever that's it is. Good. And it's good for yeah. them. They, it makes their grid more resilient too. Well, of course it does. I, and, you know, you know uh, I, so I, I don't know what the problem is, but you know, it's, this is, you know, this is, I think partly a challenge, right? I mean, so um, you know, uh, the, the companies that are, that are now being pressured by their, by their anchor stores and such things, right. Mm -hmm. To, to do this kind of thing. You know, the question is, you know, somebody, some of them are going to think about putting solar in, I'm sure at some yeah, point, yeah. you know, and what happens if, you know, they're in the middle of New York city and Con Ed's like, no, we just don't have time for this. Yeah. They never get their electric turned on. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, if, if we succeed as a society yeah. for, um, in meeting these kind of climate goals and averting mm -hmm. the worst of this, um, mm -hmm. some of it's certainly going to have to come from government regulation to get the stragglers, but I've been yeah. really encouraged, um, and optimistic by how powerful I think kind of public interest in this can be. And that mm -hmm. the power of just the consumer is pretty big once the consumers mm -hmm. have the data. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've been pretty amazed, especially, you know, with the younger generations as well, they really have a lot of, a lot of power and influence. And that's the whole, our whole premise behind making this data on buildings public is give people the opportunities, give them the tools. And as soon as they start yeah. voting with their feet, even those reluctant, you know, right. old white guys that want to use coal, they're going to change or they're not going to have yeah. a business. Well, and I agree. That's what I always say. I said, you know, vote with your tax dollars or vote with yes. this or vote with, I mean, vote that, with you know, you, you don't, yeah. you don't, that's right. Vote with your wallet. Thank you. I don't, couldn't seem to get the words out. Um, and that is, you know, how I prefer to, to do things, right? So if yeah. I yeah. don't like the way a company does business or I don't like the way they treat their employees, I just have no interest in spending money with them. I won't, and I won't do it. I'll literally do whatever I can to find someone else to do business with. But, Absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, the culture that you're building and, and what we talked a little bit about, you know, when people didn't fit, it was because of a cultural reason. You currently have 18 full-time employees and half of those are 1099. I'm a little curious about, and I think, you know, I mean, I have 1099 employees, right? Um, is if some of that other half that are 1099, you foresee bringing them into W2, why, why not as um, you grow? Yeah. So the 1099s are um, generally folks that are part of kind of, you know, a small agency, if you will. Right. Um, and we kind of work with some, I've worked with most of them in the past, those agencies. Yeah. And so this was kind of a quick way for us to get, get started. And mm -hmm. in a tight job market, we just needed mm -hmm. some folks quickly. So that was the yeah. initial impetus. Um, I think we will convert 
some of them over, um, maybe not those individuals because it's a little dicey. Yeah. I don't want to be like poaching, poaching the employees yeah, yeah. of like a really great development shop that mm-hmm. has been great to me and I've worked with, you know, at the past mm-hmm. company and this company. Uh, but we will kind of convert more of that over mm-hmm. over time. Um, but probably not all of them because it's always nice, I think, when you're early on to have a little bit of flex where mm-hmm. as, you know, the needs are kind of bumpy, <laughs> um, you can kind of scale up, scale down. And I can go to these development shops and say, Hey, we don't need five people anymore because we've got this big product release out. I just need one for the next three months. They can go work on other projects. Mm-hmm. And then, Oh, we've got another big push. I need now seven. It let, gives you a little more flexibility than mm-hmm. with, with full-time employees. So I think we'll convert some, um, as we continue to grow. Um, but I think we'll still rely on some of the 1099s. And I think it's, yeah. And some of them, I think, would maybe never want to join us. They they like mm-hmm. the flexibility of being able to tell me, "Hey, guess what? I'm going to take off two months this summer." <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. great. You know, that's fine. Um, you're a contractor, and it's you, you can know, do whatever you want. Do yep. whatever you want. Whereas hard with employees, mm-hmm. you have to start worrying also about you know equity and across and oh, if this person takes off mm-hmm. two months and somebody else is in a role that's hard to do that. How do you handle that? All that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Um, Tell me a little bit about, before we finish up here, uh, a little bit about your talent strategy and what kind of what your growth plans are here over the next year or so. Yeah. Um, You know, we've been, I think, really lucky in that. And this is, I think, is just the fact of being a repeat entrepreneur is I had a lot of folks in kind of get the band back together kind of bucket (laughs) that I, when I started carbon title, I made a bunch of calls to people I'd worked with in the past. And, um, several of them were like, Hey, I'm actually kind of ready to make a move or I'm in between things. Mm -hmm. And so that was that first kind of piece. And then it's been wonderful that they've been able to refer people who they've worked with. And so we've, Mm -hmm. we've gotten lucky in that, you know, we've been able to kind of assemble a really exceptional team, um, mostly through kind of word of mouth referrals. That's great. Um, but going forward, uh, we know we're going to need help to find these folks. And so I think we're going to probably do like we did at Mirador is find a, a really great search firm that ideally would be on retainer and can kind of understand mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. and um, help us, especially for some of these hard to find or kind of key yeah. leadership positions, really find the right talent. Um, yeah. Because I guess, especially in a tight job market, I think we're going to be I'm guessing pulling a lot of these folks out of companies and that's mm-hmm. a little hard to do if you're the company yourself. And so, um, I think that I and the other place that we've, I think would continue to keep looking is some of these specialty niche areas where a lot of people who are focused on climate go to, there's some kind of climate blogs that have job postings and oh, things like sure. that mm-hmm. and focusing really narrowly on the climate space. Cause yeah. to be happy here, you've really got to be bought into our mission. Um, and, and care about where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course there, and, and you're right. And, you know, I, I always, I always say I'm not a fan of the post and pray, um, yeah, method <laughs> because a lot of companies use nothing but that to find people. And I'm like, yeah. that's not, that's not a headhunting strategy. No, no. Post and pray. Now adding that like to your, to your point, um, of putting that on some specialty areas in addition to doing it the right way. You know, maybe you'll yes. we'll be lucky. Maybe you'll we'll find one person. We might. And, yeah, and if you do, and, then yeah. it was worth it. <laughs> but don't let that be your whole strategy. No, I agree with you. I, and I think we are going to need yeah. help, especially for mm-hmm. some of these harder to find job positions. Mm-hmm. And to me, I don't want a firm that's just looking at how many, how many people can I place and get, you know, a, a percentage fee. I really want somebody who 
is bought in on us for the long term and is a partner and it's going to help us think through the Mm -hmm. strategies. Because I find that also really useful that, you know, how many times do I hire a head of sales, right? Like, Hopefully ideally, not very, not, not very often, right? Otherwise, yeah. you're doing a really poor job of hiring mm-hmm. if you're constantly rehiring a head of sales. How mm-hmm. many times does a really good talent partner hire a head of sales? Hundreds of times. And mm-hmm. so I've found that those really good partners in the past that are on retainer, they help me really understand what I'm looking for. Because yeah. sometimes the CEO, you're thinking like, I think I know what I want, but um, you maybe don't. And they go through a process and pull out a lot. Like, you know, actually... I don't think I want this profile. I want this other profile. Um, And I find that that really useful. And I'd say equally as valuable to me as it is the, you know, the actual mechanics of finding the talent and screening them and bringing Mm -hmm. them in. Because if you miss on the profile and you get somebody in and you realize, oh, geez, actually the business needs something that's slightly different. That's how you can also Mm -hmm. end up with a a fit and an unhappy employee. Mm -hmm. I agree. So um, before before we tie this up, I know that um, you live in Portlandia. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Moved here about 11 years ago from the Bay Area. <laughs> right. Um, tell me a little bit about how you spend your free time. I know you mentioned you've got two young children, but... Yeah. Uh, well, so I mean, aside from all the young children sports that I feel like take yeah. up an increasing amount of our weekend, which yep. is fun. Um, mm-hmm. Part of why we love Oregon is it's just so easy to get outdoors. Um, mm-hmm. So we spend our time skiing, biking, hiking. And yeah. the thing I learned is um, even though it rains a lot in the winter, um, when we moved up here, people said there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's totally the Oregonian thing yeah. way is yeah. you just get yeah. a good rain jacket and you go out and you do it in the winter. Yeah. And yeah. It's, you know, so uh, we, we do a lot of that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I hear the same thing from people. I'm like, yeah, it's like five below zero and I have to go out with my snowblower and plow my driveway of, you know, eight inches or 10 inches of snow. And people are like, you know, my friends in Florida are like, what are you like crazy? I'm like, no, you just have to have the right clothes. Exactly. I said, by you the time I'm done, I'm peeling it. off my clothes. I'm so hot. Yes. <laughs> and, totally you know, minus five degrees. <laughs> So. Totally feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Trevor, is there anything that I did? I know there were a couple of things I did not get to, um, but is there anything that that I didn't ask that you want to get to before we finish up? Oh gosh, I think you kind of covered it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there were a couple of things I missed, but I just didn't have time for. But say hit, hit the highlights. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Well, and uh, that said, uh, Trevor Dreyer, co-founder and CEO of Carbon Title. Thanks really so much for being with me. This was a really fun conversation, and you know, I hope not only will will listeners um, learn more about what it takes to to build and run a company, but to more specifically learn about what they can do to um, help our environment that we're in some deep distress over. I I agree. And thank you, Carol, for having me. It's just been a pleasure and great conversation and appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. 
I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.